I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. When Mean Girls Sing edition, it's Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. On today's show, Mean Girls is an update redo of the classic 2014 flick, this time with song and dance included. It, uh, it's from a screenplay by Tina Fey, who, of course, wrote the original, and it stars Angori Rice and Renee Rapp, among many others, in an ensemble cast. And then the adult animated series Blue-Eyed Samurai on Netflix is being called a weird, wild, sensual, ultraviolent masterpiece, and so, of course, we had to check it out, so we did. And finally, is January the cruelest month? Is April? What does it even mean to have a favorite or least favorite month of the year? We will discuss a couple of different essays. Joining me today is Nadira Goff, Slate culture writer and most excellent friend of the program, a MIFOP. I don't know. I'm not sure what your FOP is, but it's a superlative FOP. Oh, I love hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, by Country Mile, too. It's great to have you back. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Greetings. I think we're all pleased by these topics this week. Um, And so let's make a show. Mean Girls, the musical crushed at the box office this past weekend. It's taken from the 2004 classic movie, teen flick, and from also the Broadway musical that was derived from it. Katie has been homeschooled her whole life in Kenya by her mother, an American there on a research grant, when suddenly they return to the United States sending Katie into the Hobbesian cauldron known as the public high school, where she encounters, of course, cliques and pecking orders and power struggles. Is she a heroic innocent or quote-unquote shiny, fake, and hard, a queen plastic in the making? The screenplay is by Tina Fey. It's directed by first-timers Samantha Jane and Arturo Perez Jr. Stars, as I said, and Gory Rice as Katie and Renee Rapp as Regina. In the clip, we're going to hear uh, a song. It's called Meet the Plastics. It's sung by Renee Rapp as Regina George. Let's have a listen. I'm the prettiest poison you've ever seen. That filter just like me. All right. Dana, let's start with you. This was originally slated to be a streaming film. It was made with streaming in mind, not theatrical release. Maybe because of the wildly successful precedent set by Barbie, it it was released theatrically. So it has to be said, its box office was a pretty considerable upside surprise. Uh, What do you make of that? What's your relationship to the material going in? And what do you make of this movie? I mean, I'm going to ask Nadira at the end of whatever I say to talk about the box office because Nadira specifically wrote something for a movie club this year about the stealth musical, (laughs) this new marketing phenomenon where movies that are clearly musicals, like this movie in which someone bursts into song every other scene, are marketed without any hint that they might be musicals. And it seems like there was some success in that stealth marketing. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. Let me respond to the movie itself. So 
My main impression of this movie is that it has this Ouroboros quality of cyclical rejuvenation, right? The movie came along in 2004. It was a huge hit. It spawned memes before there were memes, before there was even social media or smartphones. I feel like everybody can quote their favorite quote from Mean Girls. Uh, Then it took a while. I think it wasn't until 2018 that it was recycled into a Broadway musical. And now, whether for just desire for some content to capitalize on or maybe nostalgia for the movie, although it doesn't seem like quite enough time has passed (laughs) for us to feel that nostalgia yet, it's been recycled yet again into a movie version of a musical And to me, I feel like it's a little bit of a Xerox phenomenon (laughs) where the quality downgrade is Mm. evident each time. Uh, I never saw the show on Broadway. Nadira did, and she can speak to that in a minute. But but I was familiar with the soundtrack because my daughter used to listen to the cast album sometimes. And even she would admit, I mean, even she, my daughter is a much bigger snob about Broadway musicals than me. Like, it's not a great show. She's right. Right? I mean, there's a couple good songs. I would say that World Burn, which is the song, the introductory character song for Regina George, is probably the most memorable song mm-hmm. from the show. I want to watch the world burn. I bought the gasoline. I want to watch the world burn. And everyone get me. But it's somewhat workmanlike music that was composed by Tina Fey's husband, Jeff Richmond, that really explicates emotional beats that are right there in the script anyway. I mean, one thing we read about about the Mean Girls phenomenon that I think is really interesting is that it might do better as a musical if it had a worse book. <laughs> in other <laughs> words, like, Tina Fey is such a good writer, right? She mm. kind of nailed those characters so deftly in the original script that there's not that wiggle room where you need to get to know the characters better through their big I want number or, <laughs> or whatever it is. So there's that. And then there's just the jump of making even a really good musical into a movie. It's hard to do. Yeah. You know, and to me, I mean, even musicals like Chicago, which, you know, was one of the best movie Oscar and, and sort of kicked off this new age of musicals, I don't think really works on screen. Mm. You know, the songs are great and some of the performances mm. are. So that kind of carries it. But that liftoff thing that's really, really hard to nail in a musical just doesn't work most of the time. Mm. And I don't think it really works in this movie either. Um, but before I throw to Nadira to talk about both the stage musical and the stealth marketing phenomenon, I do have to shout out who I think is the best performer in this movie, who is Jaquelle Spivey, who plays Damien, the yeah. sort of gay best friend, background character. Not a huge character in terms of his screen time, but if you saw Strange Loop on Broadway... He was so amazing in a Strange Loop on Broadway. It's and so great to see him here again. It was so generally. exciting to see him again. He's so funny. He nails every comic beat. He's a great singer, great dancer. But how far would you go to be popular and hot? Would you resist temptation? No, you would not. He's somebody who actually can translate that stage energy to the screen. And uh, so I definitely have my eye on Jaquelle Spivey. Yeah, there's so much to respond to. I found myself nodding emphatically with a lot of things that you just said, Dana. First, I want to make it clear that I love Chicago. (laughs) I love the movie Chicago. And I do love movie musicals, which is why I find the trend of the stealth musical to be so interesting. Um, Yeah, I think it's hard to actually say if... A lot of the box office success was just from the Mean Girls IP being so strong or if it was actually from the stealth musical tactic working. But there definitely was a lot of uproar on social media, you know, over the weekend of release about people 
you know, tallying how many people got up and walked out of the movie when they realized it was a musical, which I mean, I guess to, you know, production companies, they sold the ticket, so they wouldn't necessarily care what you do with it afterwards. But yeah, I think in terms of how I feel about the film as a whole, I am a huge, huge fan of the original 2004 Mean Girls, as plenty people are. And I didn't see the Broadway show on actual Broadway, but I saw it on tour because one of my former roommates was actually in it on tour. So my mom and I drove to Baltimore uh, just to see Mean Girls, and we had a good time. But I am inclined to agree with Dana's daughter that it's not the most deft musical generally that you could see. I think, like Data was saying, the music itself could have used just a little bit more work, even though I think Regina George does actually have, that character does actually have some legitimately great songs. It's a diva role, right? I mean, It's a diva role. And I think specifically in this film, Renee Rapp, who did play Regina George on Broadway, I think that she totally sells it. You know, I think that she's great. But I do think that while I agree with you, Dana, that sort of all of the recycling of Mean Girls is sort of like a Xerox machine where it gets less and less good each time. I think you you said a really specific point about you don't think that we're ready for, you know, another iteration. And I think this movie is very intentional about the fact that it is not for us. <laughs> it is not for millennials and anyone older who really, really loves the original. What they're trying to do or the way that I read it, and they even say in the original trailer this like isn't your mother's mean girls or whatever which like i'm no one's mom so chill out but <laughs> they actually walked back that marketing campaign because people responded to yeah, it because, so badly i mean the, the math just wasn't mathing there including they should try to be trying to get people, people who are that exactly. age into the theater right exactly but i do think they were very intentional about this being a sort of mean girls for gen z and so then i think the question becomes does the premise of mean girls work for today for the Gen Zers of today. And I don't entirely know that it does. I feel like they had to change quite a bit about the movie in order to make it work. And some of it was good. Like, you know, in the original 2004 film, uh, when they're going through all the cliques at the cafeteria, there's a group called the Cool Asians. And then one of those characters has uh, an affair with Coach Carr. And it's like a a whole weird storyline that they entirely cut out. And that's good. But I think that there was a lot of softening of Regina George as a character, of the idea of a mean girl as a whole. And then, like Dana pointed out, there's an even emphatic and very clear moral declared at the very end, which I don't even actually think is the moral of Mean Girls. Um, And so, yeah, it seems like with this new version, although I do find it to be really funny in some moments, um, it just seems like they had to change a lot of the core of what Mean Girls is to make it this sort of really happy, uh, bouncy, fluffy story about how at the end of the day we should all be nice to each other, which I don't actually think to me, was the moral of the original? Well, I find myself nodding vigorously along to everything um, you've both just said, to which I have a asterisk slash addendum, which is just taking myself for one second as a generational representative. I think I'm exactly the right age where I remember adoring the 2004 Mean Girls, as most people did, uh, becoming from that moment on an unreservedly... um, admiring fan of Tina Fey and uh, all her work uh, before and since. And on the other hand, I didn't return to this IP. I didn't 
I've never rewatched it. I saw it in the theater in 2004. I'm exactly the age where Clueless is my Mean Girls. I didn't even realize it was really a, a remake. That's how, I mean, I didn't, I thought it was just like another, you know, it was to taking the very basic idea and template mm. and Tina Fey had remade it into it. I mean, I had no idea that it was the same story. That's how little that movie um, stayed with me as anything other than a pleasant memory. So <laughs> I kind of loved this. I had the most sort of simpleton, naive, happy response to it, which is once again, I'm happy to be in a movie theater. There are, are people around me who are adoring this, who clearly are adoring it because they adored the original. Um, I went with my daughter who had a lot of fun and we both walked out saying three and a half stars, B plus. And you know what? A Hollywood revival is going to hinge way more on that and movies like this than it is on Barbenheimer, these unicorn events. Um, and that made me happy. And the other thing I just want to say is if it's not clear already, like Tina Fey just dignifies everything that she touches. I, I don't know. There's just such a, wonderful balance of acidity and what do you even call it umami because it's not sweetness right there's there's something about the way she cuts and the way her acid hits the palate that never curdles it never you never feel your face pruning you never feel belittled by her humor i just think she really is i mean i think everyone understands she's a national treasure and a comic genius but I love having that reaffirmed. And I laughed throughout the movie and I didn't find the transitions clunky. I mean, something happened to my You're critical faculties. You're telling me that when Katie opens a tent from Kenya and Do when she not. opens the tent and then is suddenly at the steps of North Shore High School. I mean, you didn't but they, that's Tina, that, you don't think that's Tina Fey's gigantic eye looking at you and winky no, winking? I, I mean, not. it's like, I we got to get this thing, we got to get this fucking thing machine moving. I mean, also, Nadira, don't clutter the conversation with specifics. Come on. Like, I, you know, um, you're getting between a man and his yum. And I just was like, there's a kind I of weird narcosis to this. Have and, to implore you, Steve, to go back and rewatch the original. I, I really do. I will absolutely do that. And 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 I fully understand that not having done that is what made this the weird delay. I mean, I had a kind of like men in black amnesia effect that I brought into the movie theater that really worked. But I want to say also I kind of really liked both leads. I mean, obviously, she, uh, Renee Rapp is just is Regina George, and it's just vampy and huge, and it has a wonderful physicality. She's not, she's a huge personality in a not tiny body. Mm -hmm. She's not like a little Hollywood stick, and that is is really cool, right? There is this like this really intense force of nature, vava voominess to it that she owns, um, and is so commanding and very good. I actually really liked Angori Rice as the sort of ingenue whose overcompensations lead her to sort of sell her soul to plastic hood a little bit. And I think we all agree, like, um, unanimity, Jaquel Spivey as Damien Hubbard. He, Hubbard is so good. And you're right, he's not like a huge part of the movie. He's not really integral to the plot in one sense, but he forms a Greek chorus. So he's, in a weird way, he is the tutelary spirit of this film. I think he's absolutely wonderful i kind of i I'm not, love is just way too strong but every now and then you love a b plus in a very specific way and that's that's how i loved this movie yeah i would just implore you to go back and watch the original because i think it has all of the things that you like about this film but i think that it's just much sharper i think everything is sort of 
just attuned to sort of the perfect point. But I would be really interested to hear what you think the differences are and how well you think the original suits millennial times versus this one now. Fair enough. Okay, well, it's Mean Girls. It's out in theater. It would be very interesting to watch what it does um, in subsequent weekends, uh, what the word of mouth is. Now people obviously know it's a musical going in. uh, Does it continue to build on its uh, immense success? All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in the podcast we typically discuss business. Uh, Dana, what do we have? Steve, the only item of business is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment this week. We're going to be talking about the idea of reinventing yourself through books. This is very loosely inspired by a piece in The Atlantic a few weeks ago called What to Read If You Want to Reinvent Yourself by Chelsea Liu. But our segment will less be about the books that she chose and more about self-reinvention via reading in general. What are some books that we would advise people to read if they want to think about themselves and their place in the universe that are not self-help books, but could be from any genre at all? What are the books that we ourselves return to when we want to have those deep experiences of transformation? If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that conversation at the end of this show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up to be a Slate Plus member, you get bonus content like the conversation I just described. You also get ad-free podcasts And, of course, unlimited access to all of the writing and podcasting on Slate. These memberships are really what keep us going. So please, if you haven't already, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. All right. Well, Blue Eye Samurai is on Netflix. It's an animated series aimed squarely at adult audiences. It's filled with plenty of sex and violence for whatever that's worth. It's created and written by husband and wife team of Michael Green and Amber Noizumi. It takes place in 17th century Japan, uh, when Japan was an almost entirely closed and ethnically homogenous society. And uh, at least according to the TV show, a person with white blood then is considered a quote-unquote monster, to use the language of the show. When we meet Mizu, he's a young Japanese boy who, courtesy of a white father, has blue eyes, which must remain hidden behind tinted glasses and the brim of a large hat. He is apprenticing to a blind smithy whose specialty is perfectly wrought swords. Along the way, Mizu is tutored in the way of the samurai, and what follows from there is an epic and picaresque story of revenge. In the clip, we're going to hear the voice of Maya Erskine as Mizu, the blue-eyed samurai. Here, Mizu is explaining where the blue eyes came from. Let's have a listen. I am made of mixed metal. No amount of hammering can remove my impurity. At the time I was born, there were four white men in all of Japan. Men who traded in weapons and opium and flesh. One of them took my mother and made of me. A monster. A creature of shame. I do not know their names. I do know their fate. They will all die by my hand. I have vowed this. Okay, Nadir, let's get a bit of business, I think, out of the way. There's something that might be considered a spoiler here. We've all agreed it's not really. It's mentioned in every review of the show. And in fact, one is not really surprised watching episode one to discover that Mizu is not a boy, but in fact a girl or a woman. Or 
trans or non-binary, depending. I, I mean, as the show unfolds, I think that becomes more curious and more ambiguous. But uh, I, we've decided we, in order to discuss the show, we have to mention it. And um, no, no critic has withheld it. So having gotten that out of the way, what did you make of this really extraordinary, I mean, you know, an unusual show? I'm really glad that I'm here to talk about it because the last time I remember seeing something similar to this was John Wick 4, which I believe I was also on GabFest to talk about with you all. And they're obviously not a one-to-one copy, but I find this to be the sort of female and or queer-led animated version of John Wick 4. And I think that it deals with some of, you know, very similar storylines. And obviously there's a protagonist who only has revenge uh, in their sights. But I also think that there are some really interesting and illuminating things in this show that I just want to say I absolutely loved. Like, I, I, I thought that this was amazing. I've watched almost all of it except for the very last episode. Um, so first, just to get it out of the way, the, the animation is beautiful. Like the animation is absolutely stunning. There's an episode later in the series that's very fight scene heavy. And not only does it employ some of the same tactics that it's used since the beginning of the show in terms of animation, but it also plays around with the camera work and animation, which I think is so fun when animated series or films do that, when they play around with shots and angles and stuff in ways that are really fun. Um, but yeah, in addition to the animation, there are two things that I actually really love about this show. The first one is that it shows really interesting ideas about pleasure and sex. And I find it really cool and refreshing to see a show that doesn't necessarily shy away from, you know, the idea or just the the fact that planned and understood, I guess, art of sex work is something that has been cultivated over centuries and something that is actually really important in culture. And I like a show that doesn't shy away from that, that doesn't look down on sex work, but shows it as an important part of history that it is. And then in addition to that, it's also interesting to see a show where whiteness is considered the enemy or the thing that makes you a demonized outcast, which is so different from our general, you know, current reality within a Western ruling world. And so I think the show, in addition to really tackling just a very classic uh, samurai warrior, um, one man, quote unquote, alone story, also tackles some of these really interesting themes and ideas really well and really uh balanced and i've just found it to be fun and funny but also heartbreaking and exciting but also terrifying because it actually is very gory and very full of violence um and it just sort of hit all of the marks for me Mm. well dana listeners to this show know of your taste for ultra violence and you know how much you really love it in all its (laughs) expressions what Am what I known you, for the uh, opposite? Would, Wait, is that some kind of joke about how I'm like a granny who can't stand anything violent? <laughs> I think it's, no, it's not that. It really isn't. And it's not even a jibe. It's just like, I'm always very curious to know what you make of something that is as aesthetically ambitious as, for example, this, that does feature, you know, gore, uh, though maybe I shouldn't be, but I am, I'm very curious to know what you make of this 
TV show. Hmm. Well, now, now I'm feeling bad for all the grannies who like gore. And so if any of you are listening, more power to you. Yeah, I think in a way Steve is right that I'm probably not the most drawn to this kind of narrative that proceeds mainly through fight scenes. Although I am a big fan of the John Wick movies, actually. <laughs> um, but this show understands what it is so completely and kind mm. of it, it fulfills the, the role that it sets for itself so beautifully that I, I can appreciate it. Even though the fight scenes might not be my favorite part of it, I mean, you're right, Nadira. We see lots of, for example, intestines, (laughs) animated guts spilling out of bodies, and the gore is not always stylized. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there's the classic sort of, oh, there's a Japanese screen and blood has splashed on it from some unseen place, but sometimes you do see the place. So definitely be prepared for that as you're going in. Um, Same thing with the sex scenes. I mean, not to equate violence and sex, but as sort of two things that are sometimes taboo in in mainstream representation. I really appreciated that there were some very straightforward sex scenes, like two characters are having sex, you know, and like they're having a conversation during it and it's advancing the story. And like it's not something that's being vaguely alluded to in a sensuous way in the background. It is the actual substance of that moment in the narrative. Like I I appreciate that adultness. You know, this is made for, for adults clearly or for, you know, Older teens, I guess. Um, And so I appreciated that. Yeah, I wouldn't say that this show is way up my alley, and it's less in a way because of the violence than because of the very stately pacing. It definitely (laughs) takes its time. Um, This is an eight-hour season, and they're not quite an hour. I guess some of the shows are about 45 minutes. Some of them go up to 60, uh, and there's going to be a second season coming. And it all unfurls in this very... um, pomp and pageantry sort of way. Like, if somebody is making a journey across the countryside, we will get a good five-minute montage of them walking through the snow. And because the animation is so beautiful, uh, I sort of enjoyed those moments. But I cannot say that this show exactly reeled me in. Mm -hmm. But that said, there's really nothing that it does wrong. (laughs) You know, all the voice work is really excellent. And I do think we should mention, since we're talking about, you know, the role of a race in this show and the entire show is centered around this mixed race character, that something remarkable is that every Asian character in this movie, though speaking English, is voiced by an Asian actor. Many of them legendary Asian actors like George Takei, Ming-Na Wen. There's there's lots of big names in the voice cast. Um, to, to once again stress how beautiful it looks, I wanted to just sort of mention what it looks like. I mean, there's so much Japanese art that's being woven into the look of this. And I wouldn't know enough about Asian art history to be able to class all the periods. But one thing I really see in there is like the floating world prints, you know, those famous ukiyo-e prints from Mm -hmm. Japan, which are a little Mm -hmm. bit post-dated to the show, I think. They're a century or two later. But a lot of them, of those prints, for example, will, will show the world of sex workers. That was a favorite topic of that kind of woodblock print. And the colors, the kind of, you know, the way the the landscapes have a foreground and a background, you know, where you'll sort of see some branches in the foreground and then like a far distant mountain in the background and the characters in between that sense of depth. So, yeah, I felt that I admired this show maybe more than I loved it, but I can see why people are falling for it so hard. Oh, I loved it unreservedly. I mean, I the stately pace at first I thought might be um, an impediment, but as I got into it, I loved how it unfurled according to its own pacing that it is not it's never frenetic and it never feels an obligation to move as quickly as possible to the next violent set piece um you know or fight sequence i love nadira that it reminded you of john wick four i hadn't thought of that but it really does um i think in part because the genealogy traces back 
to, and a couple of people have pointed this out to Sergio. They, they, I think even the creators have cited the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns mm. with Clint Eastwood, you know, Fistful of Dollars and Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, the other one for a few dollars more, uh, and obviously Kurosawa, unavoidably so. And uh, Wick, the, you know, the Wick series, especially the fourth, comes out of that that same set of influences. I love that it also that the very origin of the series in the lives of the married creators is uh having a daughter who uh a half japanese half anglo uh presumably daughter who's blue-eyed and thinking about what constitutes an other and how obviously socially specific that is and um and nadira you're so right i kept thinking of that oh my god a tv show in which whiteness is othering right is the basis for a a kind of othering um totally gripping i love how much of the subplots seem to hinge on what power women do and don't have within a feudal society and a patriarchal society, How, what forms of cunning and strategic silence and flattery are necessary to deal with the patriarch of a patriarchal household, right? Like a, a society in which at least nominally all the power is vested in a series of, of paterfamilia. And, um, I, and also the other really provocative comment, um, Dana, that you made was the relationship between sex and violence is really fascinating in this. It's, it's very, there's expl- fairly explicit sex. There's um, a, a huge respect for sex work as a long centuries old tradition. But also there's that incredible moment in I think the first or second episode where a woman in the act uh, in the sexual act is drawing an analogy like verbally to her lover, lover between his ability to commit a domineering act of violence that's actually also narrating the sex act. And so in that moment, she's empowering him to believe that he always has the power, right? That in fact, at that moment, she herself <laughs> is getting him, she thinks, to do something that she wants him to do and has the power. Peter lunges at you. But his sword is no match for yours. You strike with your blade. <sighs> I mean, it's just to me, that was one of the most perfectly bewitching moments of the series because it engaged with this notion of where a certain kind of traditionally male coded kind of power as violence might begin and end within such a society. It just, I, to me, it was just a, a totally um, triumphant piece of television. Here, here. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything you guys are saying on paper or on screen, but somehow in my heart, I just don't feel deeply committed to finishing this show, and I'm not totally sure I will. And I think a tiny part of that may be something that came up in one of the reviews we read of it, uh, just a mildly critical thing that someone said who otherwise loved the show, who was saying, I kept waiting to figure out how we were supposed to feel about the monomaniacal revenge quest of Mizu, right? I mean, are we to regard it as something ennobling or possibly corrupting? And it seems like something that could have been brought in, given that we have this, you know, ambivalent, maybe feminine, masculine, you know, this this different kind of figure in the John Wick, typical macho samurai position. Something that could have been brought in would be maybe to ask the question, is it purely noble to be utterly bent on revenge and have your entire life be about, you know, finding these people and killing them. I feel like the show starts to maybe float that idea, but at least as far as I've gotten, it hasn't really turned that into a central question. Mm. Okay. Well, it's Blue Eye Samurai. It's on um, Netflix. Uh, Quick 
thing that I wanted to shout out to is that Michael Green, the co-writer of it, wrote Blade Runner 2049, which I thought was such a grossly mm. underrated film. I yeah. didn't understand why people didn't get lost in that. I mean, its stateliness of its pacing might have been one impediment. But I, I, I anyway, I love, I love both. Uh, okay, check it out. Let us know what you think. Consider the plight of January, the sad sack of months. So writes Stephen Kurutz in the New York Times. That's January 9th, for what it's worth. It lacks for sunlight, some of the worst weather in the Northern Hemisphere. He goes on to say it's a month without social holidays. Even lowly February, its companion in the winter doldrums, has Valentine's Day. Um, Nadira, he goes on, the author goes on to talk about how it's a terrible month for movies because it's obviously the antithesis of the summer blockbuster season, but we've also just, Hollywood's also just spent the pipeline on uh, excellent prestige movies in order to make the Oscar deadline in the previous calendar year. Uh, it appears to be, according to the polling, the least favorite month of Americans. What uh, What do you think about like assigning... January, this um, scapegoat status, uh, do you agree? And do you have a favorite month? Like, on what basis does one even assign favorite or least favorite month status? Yeah. I mean, I definitely have a favorite month or a few. None of them are freaking January. I, I, can t- I can tell you that much. I think the, the argument for January in this piece actually does make sense to me. I can see how some people would really like the calming respite of January that is post all of the sort of holiday hubbub. But at the same time, and I say this as someone who lives in New York City where there is currently snow that will soon freeze into ice on the ground, I do find the lack of awareness of disability or injury to to be uh, something that's maybe missing from this piece that points out New York restaurants and all this stuff. I understand that obviously your favorite month might depend on where you're based or location, but considering that this is a piece that specifically points out New York restaurants, it's also sort of making the case that it's the best month for New Yorkers. And I, as someone who has bad knees and has had a really bad knee injury, just get a lot of anxiety when it's icy and wet on the ground. And so January overall, not my favorite for that reason. And also, I'm just not the biggest fan of the colds. Um, but I do think the idea of a favorite month is really interesting and fun. My favorite months are probably May and October. May because it's spring and beautiful, but also my birthday month. And then October because fall is my favorite season. And I just feel like October is when fall really sort of shows out, right? It's when fall is at its most unstoppable fallness. And I love that for me. At least before (laughs) Um, climate change. Right. Exactly. That's also very, very true. Um, And I do wonder how that will maybe shift everyone's favorite month. That's a great point, Dana. Um, but I, I just, I, I wonder why we sort of feel the need to categorize almost everything in life this way. Like, why we feel the need. Is it self-soothing to be like, ah, oh, yes, January, it'll be fine if I just think of it as my favorite month. Like, is there a reason why we sort of feel the need to have a favorite or least favorite or thing or talk about other things in terms of favorites or I guess attributing some sort of random merits to them. I think that inclination is actually more interesting to me than what people's specific favorite months are. You know, when you ask Mm. about that, why attribute different things to different months, it makes me think of 
well, we just talked about traditional Japanese art and talking about Blue Eye Samurai. It makes me think of haiku and seasonal poetry, mm-hmm. not just haiku, but Japanese art is so, so big into seasons, right? Um, and there's this whole thing about uh, celebrating or at least remarking on the transition of each season into the next season. And maybe part of our need to obsessively categorize the year is is that, you know, mm-hmm. is a way mm-hmm. of, of marking time or thinking about time in a way that's more profound than just sort of slogging onward. Uh, I really loved this this little tribute to January and somehow identified with it, although I would not say it's my favorite month of the year, because I appreciate its celebration of, of the blankness yeah. <laughs> of January. You know, I think what, what s- some of the people interviewed for this this little celebration of January say is, I appreciate not having to be anywhere or do anything. And that I can completely identify with. I mean, as a movie critic, Everything since September has been yeah. about like movies, movies, movies. Here come some more. Write about these. Categorize them. Put them in lists. And then, you know, Movie Club, which mm-hmm. you were part of this year, Nadira. There's a huge seasonality. You know, I could write many haiku about movie <laughs> season. Um, and then to me, that always ends. There's a very specific marker in my particular movie season, which is always the first week of January. And it's the New York Film Critics Circle mm-hmm. Awards. Like mm-hmm. we voted on our awards. We give out our awards. We have this dressy night. It's like, you know, the probably whatever fifth or sixth time I've gone out during the holiday season, right? Like work party, this party, that party, have people over. And then I get dressed up for that night, go out with some friends, and I always have this great feeling of like, ah, now I can just be I can just be as ugly as I like for the rest of the month. <laughs> no more dressing up. No one's going to see me. You know, at most, I'm going to come into the mm. studio like I'm here right now. I can just be my troll-like self mm-hmm. recording the show. And there's a kind of relaxation to just knowing that you don't have to produce yourself for a little while. Um, yeah. I'm not sure, nice. you know, obviously not everybody has that same seasonality to their year. And you might have a January where you do have to go out a lot. But I think most people would identify January as a time of privacy and quiet in for sure way, right a time that you can sort of hole up and be anonymous and private and uh, and that i think is something to, to treasure and celebrate in the year yeah like hello darkness my old friend right like there's something about like having just been in los angeles there's something psychosis making about eternal sunshine and totally predictable weather and just being sun kissed and sun saturated and you know it's the ironic effect is that for as much as California is wrapped up in the cult of the body, you're almost liberated from the body when it's always like room temperature outside and sunny in some sense, that consciousness of the body that a Northeast August brings upon you mm-hmm. or a, or a Northeast January. Right. And, and the fact of the rhythm and seasonality of it in relation to the human body's comforts and discomfort zones um, is kind of wonderful. So I, I like the seasons and I, dislike the idea both that September is the new August because of global warming uh, and um, and that the shallowing out of um, winter. So, the, the, I mean, the disappearance of snow, the fact that, Dana, as you'll know, right, one of the great phrases about human nostalgia, like kind of evoking human nostalgia is like, where are the snows of yesteryear, right? Um, can't remember who initially said it. It was Villon, Ous- François Villon. Uh, uh, Villon, exactly. Où sont les nièges dans Tantan, is that it? No, I'm so sorry, is is... Yep. Yeah, and and it's like not, we're literalizing that loss. <laughs> we're actually making that loss a literal thing. Is so fucking heartbreaking. So to the extent you get a real winter day, right? Or 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 the fact that just 
at least the light, right? The shortening of the day and lengthening of the day, even like human folly at scale will mm-hmm. not at least take that away from us. So, um, secondly, I just have one of those personalities like you, Dana, which is like something about at least occasionally being able to hunker down, withdraw, anonymize yourself. Um, and, and then once hunkered down, like Higa, you know, that Danish concept of, you know, Higa of just the upside of once withdrawn, I mean, you know, the cozy interior spaces, um, all of which is to say, uh, if I had to pick a favorite month, I'd have no problem. It's October. So long as October doesn't start to turn into November, doesn't start to turn into October, but October is just, and I just have to read a little bit from the frost poem, October. Um, oh, hushed October morning mild, begin the hours of this day slow, make the day seem to us less brief. Hearts not averse to being beguiled, beguile us in the way you know. Release one leaf at break of day, at noon, release another leaf. One from our trees, one far away. Retard the sun with gentle mist, enchant the land with amethyst. Slow, slow, for the grape's sake, if they were all whose leaves already are burnt with frost, whose clustered fruit must else be lost for the grape's sake along the wall. Ah, exactly that. That moment of just like, mm. I'm just going to go full corny Nadira. Give me permission. It's the essence Do of it. death and life. Life and death. <laughs> I love October. October is my one it's of my favorite best. months, as I said before. Fall is my favorite season. And yep. just to piggyback off of what Dana was saying earlier, I too love seasons. I think there's something about a marked change that as, as someone who's very uh, reflective um, that is really meaningful and sort of beautiful to see. And it's one of the reasons why I'm sort of, I have a sort of personal campaign against the West Coast because I feel like if you don't have that change, then how can you appreciate the moment that you're in, right? How can you appreciate uh, summer if you don't have winter? How can you appreciate fall if you don't have spring? And all those kinds of things, because I'm, I don't know, emotional that way or whatever. But I also think one of the things that makes January interesting is just the idea of like reflexiveness over the year, the past year and the year coming up. And this idea of who you want to be and sort of taking stock of everything and reevaluating what you've done and what you want to do. And I find that to be both sort of like oppressive but also freeing (laughs) in a way that's really complicated and so January is an interesting month for sure because I think it's full of just a lot of contradictions you know I I feel like it's busy in a way where the weather might be harsher depending on where you are but it's calmer in the way that it gives you a bit more uh, freedom to stay at home or not do anything and then it's also reflexive which can be freeing but also maybe you don't want to reflect but everyone around you was reflecting and so that can be a little bit stifling um but january to me seems to be one of the months that's really what you make of it at at its heart which i don't actually think is true for every month like i don't think july for example is what you make of it i think you just like it's july and it's hot and so you have to be outside and do the summer things but january seems to be one of those months that's really what you make of it which i think is cool shout out to january okay the uh piece that we're ultimately referring to is January Secret, It's the Best Month by Stephen Kruitz in the New York Times. We'll link to it. And then there was also a YouGov piece about Americans' favorite and least favorite months of the year, you know, dealing with a lot of polling. 
on the issue, check them out and uh, shoot us an email. Let us know um, what yours is and isn't. All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have? All right. Well, this is maybe related to our January segment a little bit, because one of the things that I tend to like to do during the winter is to uh, listen to a really long audiobook and just have, you know, what I have called before, like a mountain to climb, <laughs> you know, while take while hiking through uh, the chilly landscapes. And the one that I'm listening to right now, this is going to be a little bit of a callback because I've mentioned this audiobook reader before, but she really is the greatest audiobook reader. And I'm now just making my way through every single thing she's read on Audible. It's Juliet Stevenson, the great um, British stage actress. And Steve, you're going to be happy about what I'm listening to now. I don't think that I've mentioned that I'm reading this yet, but if so, I haven't mentioned that I was listening to Juliet Stevenson read it. And it's Middlemarch by George Eliot. One of your favorite Ooh. novels, correct? Oh, that is so good. I think we're about to family book club Middlemarch. Um, oh, if you do, then and, I highly recommend my method, which is yeah. have the book and paperback, just a beat up yep. paperback that you can carry around, take in the bathtub, doesn't matter if it looks nice or falls apart, and yep. listen to Juliet Stevenson at the same time. Because as you know, Steve, if you know the book, I mean, that is one hell of a sprawling Victorian novel. Like I read Vanity Fair last year by William Makepeace Thackeray, and that is a sprawling Victorian novel. But compared <laughs> to Middlemarch, the size, the number of characters, the sheer just vastness of the, the cast that you're dealing with. Vanity Fair ends up, you know, looking like some little slip of a, you know, romance <laughs> novel you could read overnight. I mean, absolutely, absolutely loved Vanity Fair. I'm loving Middlemarch, too, but it's a whole other level. Like, on page 500, you're still getting new characters being introduced. <laughs> so, yeah, you really do have to stick with it and kind of go back and forth between the two. But Juliet Stevenson, who I've already listened to read Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and uh, Mrs. Dalloway, I've listened to those three books by her, really outdoes herself on Middlemarch. I mean, just the voices she does, it's unbelievable. I will never think of these characters without thinking of her incredibly textured and layered understanding of, you know, the humor, the language felicity, just everything that goes into making this book the great novel that it is. Miss Brooke had that kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress. Her hand and wrist were so finely formed that she could wear sleeves not less bare of style than those in which the Blessed Virgin appeared to Italian painters. So, yes, Middlemarch is one endorsement, but specifically Juliet Stevenson's audible reading of it. No, just so nice. amazing, and by far and away my favorite novel uh, originally written in the English language. Um, Nadira, what about you? So every time I come on GabFest, I almost always have a music endorsement, and that will continue. So I have two very, very quick ones. Uh, the first one is just a revisit of the 2015 album Depression Cherry by the dream pop group Beach House. It's a lot sparser than their other works, but it's still very dreamy, um, very surreal, um, and very comforting in a way that I found to be really useful, I guess, just during the doldrums of winter or the doldrums of being on a plane or what have you. So something really good to revisit. And then the other is singer and actress Cynthia Erivo covering the song Alfie for the Kennedy Center Honors, which was honoring, of course, Dionne Warwick, who is one of the singers and musicians who popularized the song.
the Kennedy Center Honors in general was a great just entire, I guess, awards uh, this year. Queen Latifah and other great people that I really, really love were honored. But yeah, Cynthia Rivo's cover of Alfie is something that will stick with me. It's just so powerful, so beautiful, and soft in the right moments. And every time Cynthia Rivo really sings and shows her artistry to the best of her ability, I just start to get emotional immediately. And it's it's definitely something to watch. Ooh, that sounds really cool. Okay, so there's a little bit of a run-up to my endorsement this week. Um, it involves the song Blues Run the Game by Jackson C. Frank. Um, very quickly, Jackson C. Frank was an American who went to England at just the moment that American folk and blues and British-English balladry and folk, the you know, English folk that as it came out of the ballad tradition, were beginning to mingle, specifically in the persons of Jackson C. Frank, Paul Simon, who came over and then produced, I mean, it was before he was famous, produced Jackson C. Frank's one wonderful, iconic, deservedly iconic album, and and then, you know, Pentangle, John Renborn, Burt Janch, uh, Nick Drake came out of that scene. Um, I think at one point, maybe slightly later, James Taylor, a lot of people who were basically finger-picking guitars, and one of the wonderful points of hybridization was a finger picking style called Travis picking which is very American it's it's named after Merle, Merle Travis a country star who more or less invented it which uses this metronomic baseline iterated out by the thumb basically going boom 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 typically off the tonic up to the God, help me out fifth maybe but not always um and then you're playing syncopated notes um on the beat and on the offbeat with your other fingers and for me this has always been a thing i was convinced i could not do uh it was like i'm just a hobby guitarist i'm a strummer i do a little bit of finger picking but not really and what when, when i said not really really meant i don't travis pick right and i thought the intricacy of it just forget it. It's just the, it's just, I can't, I don't have that sort of independence of motion between thumb and my other four fingers. I mean, so of the Travis Pick songs that people would know, like um, that Fleetwood Mac song is an incredible one. Da, da, two time. Never going back again. Never going back again. Is that what it is? That's beautiful Travis picking. Um, but Blues Run in the Game is a really primal one because it is exactly that moment where these two, you know, English and American um, styles of being a folk singer are coming together. Catch a boat to England, baby, maybe to Spain. Wherever I have gone, wherever I've been and gone, wherever I have gone. Are all the same. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. It's been covered by Laura Marling, Nick Drake, Burt Janch, John Renborn covered it. Um, yeah, John Mayer covered it for what it's worth. I mean, you know, people justly revere this song, and I was like, I, I can't even play. You know, like, if you don't Travis Pickett, you're not playing that song. The essence of it is that metronomic beat that's an engine through the whole thing. I found a guy, and you know before you look that such people exist on YouTube who gives 
guitar lessons just over YouTube for free. And there's something about him and his self-presentation, which is goofy, and I find it, it becomes very quickly lovable. Um, and his name is Mike, and he has the website called Mike's Music Method, and very generously, he has these things called tabs, which are sort of the notational equivalent of finger picking, so that you also have it in front of you graphically or whatever, symbolically. Um, but he he, he he has multiple lessons of wonderful finger-picking songs, many of which are Travis picking. He explains Travis picking. But his one on Blues Run the Game, I've lived with for one month now, and I now know how to play it, which is to say, I now know how to Travis pick, a thing that I really thought was just the essence of the limit of my musical ability. In fact, wasn't at all. And it took his sort of ingratiation, patience, the way he breaks it down into component parts, and something about that inspired me to do which something which runs against my character, which is actually what I'm going to do is play it literally, quite literally, I'm going to play it 1,000 times wrong. And we're not talking about the song now. We're talking about each measure of the song. And I will not move on until I get that measure right. And I can now fucking do it. I can actually play that song and I can sing it poorly as I play it. And this is a really heartfelt thank you to Mike. Uh, I'll email him and let him know that this is out there in the world. Um, but um, also you should check out his website. And also really what the endorsement is, is like pick something you're convinced you can't do and put up with the humiliations of not being able to do it in order to do it. And maybe you'll like me surprise yourself. Dear, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is really, really, really fun to have you um, on regularly. As always, thanks for having me. Dana, thank you so much. It was a joy. Yeah, it was a joy, uh, as always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our theme music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Nadira Goff and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Bye.